When I first went to, to basic training, I had all kinds of problems the first week or so that I was there. Um, it, it centered around the running portion of it. When I arrived at basic training, I was in terrible, terrible physical conditioning. And I know you're thinking, an athletic beast like you, how is it possible? But, but it's true, I, I, I was not an athlete in high school. I had never done anything. I didn't do not a thing to prepare to, to go to basic training. And so when I got there, we took off after the, on that first day to run. And, and I don't know how far we ran or how fast, but all I know is... After a while, it began to hurt. And we were in this formation and we're running and, and my knees are hurting and my shins are hurting and my hip is hurting and my lungs are burning and my throat is hurting. And then it felt like somebody beside me was just stabbing me in the ribs with a knife. And, and man, it was terrible. And as I didn't know what I was going to do, I noticed somebody moved out of the formation and stopped. And I thought, man, I didn't know that was an option. So I did that too. I, it's called falling out of the run. And I, I fell out of the run, and, and then you got to kind of walk and jog along behind everybody. And Now, when you get up and catch up to everybody, the drill sergeant really humiliates you, but it doesn't hurt nearly as bad as the running part of it does. So that was the first day. Second day, we repeated. Third day, we repeated. Fourth day, same thing. Finally, the drill sergeant, he, he calls me off to the side, and he decides to have a little heart-to-heart chat with me. And he asked me a question. He said, do you... Do you even want to be a soldier, Ross? Oh, of course. I mean, I'm listed. That's why I'm here. And he said, if you do not start finishing these runs, you are not going to make it. You are going to fail on physical, on the physical nature of it, and you're going to be sent home without being a soldier. Now, all I'd ever wanted since I was five years old was to be a soldier. So the thought of going home as a failure was not even... A real thing. So the next day I determined I, I'm not going to quit no matter what. I mean, I'm going to push through. I'm going to keep running and I'm going to go. And so we took off running and oh, it hurt every bit as bad as it had every other day. But at the height of the pain, when I would normally quit, I, I made the decision I would keep going. I would not stop and I would not fall out. And I and I made it through that run and I realized you could push through the pain, that, that the pain wasn't actually going to kill me, no matter how bad I thought it might. And once I made that decision, that in order to be a soldier, I was going to have to push through the pain to finish the run, I never fell out again. Now, I'm not saying I was a good runner. I'm, I never was, never have been, never will be. But I realized that I could push through the pain. I realized that I didn't have to stop just because it got hard. You know, the Christian life, one of the ways that it's, that it's called is that of a race. We are called to, to run with endurance the race that God has set before us. Now, the race that God has set before us, it's not a, a quick race. It's not a run from here to the end of the parking lot. It is a long marathon. The race starts, I guess you could say officially, on the day that we're saved. The race ends at the time Jesus takes us home to be with him or he returns to take everybody home to be with him. But until that time, we are to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, the race that God has set before us, it is going to be hard at times. There are going to be times in this race where it hurts terribly. There are going to be times in this race where it feels like everything around us is going to crush us. There are going to be times where there is unimaginable pain in this race. 
What do we do at that moment? What do we do when the race gets hard? What do we do when the pain comes? That's what we're going to talk about today. Open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, We're actually going to start in verse 32 and go through verse 40 this morning. Primarily, this series is going to actually be in chapter 12. But we're starting in Hebrews 11 today. So open your Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Hebrews 11 and 32. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and of David and of Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained the promises, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lion, quenched the violence of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, Women received their dead to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had a trial of mockings and scourgings and, yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskin and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. Of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. title of the message this morning is the problem of pain. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and you are worthy of our praise, and you are worthy of our devotion. Father, you have done so much for us that if we were to take the time to recount it, we would be here forever, Lord. Lord, we are amazed at your love for us, that you would send your only Son to die such an awful death in our place to pay the penalty that that we had earned. God, we are so thankful that you chose to do that. We are so thankful, God, that you have loved us in that kind of a way. And Father, before each one of us, you have set a race that we must run. You have laid before us a path that we are to follow. And Lord, sometimes that path is going to be painful. God, in that time of pain, we have a choice to make. Will we quit or will we push through the pain? And as we look at your word today, Father, let your spirit come and equip us that we could push through the pain and finish the race that you have set before us. Father, let your spirit come today and give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. Help us to lay aside the cares of life. And Lord, to just let your word rule and reign in this time and let it speak into our hearts and let it sink down deep and bring forth good fruit for your glory. Father, fill me with your Holy Spirit that I could speak your words and your ways. Uh, Lord, and I would not in any way be a hindrance to what you want said or what you want done. Let me not say a word unless it be what you want me to say, Father. Father, be glorified in how we hear. Be glorified in how we respond. And Father, be glorified as we go out of this place and how we live in a way that would testify that Jesus is Lord over our lives. Have your way in all of our hearts and in all of our lives. We ask in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Now, in these verses, there is a huge, huge contrast made. In the very first part of it, 
There are people who, through faith, subdued kingdoms and worked righteousness and obtained promises and stopped the mouths of lion and quenched the violence of fire and escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness they were made strong. They became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead to life again. Man, that is awesome, right? I mean, that's like the, that's what we want to enlist for. That's what we want in our Christian life. This, give us that. Right? Through faith, we want the victory. Through faith, we want these great deliverances. Through faith, make all of these awesome things happen, God. But look at what it goes on to say. But others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. They, they could have been stopped. They could have had the torture stopped. If they had maybe denied Jesus, or if they had maybe stopped serving the Lord, but they chose not to. Because they knew what was coming was better than what they were giving up. Still others had a trial of, of mockings and scourgings and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They, they wandered about in sheepskin and goatskin, being destitute. Now, destitute, it means just what it sounds like. They had nothing. They were afflicted and tormented. That is a, a stark contrast in two groups of people. And if we're not careful, what we'll do is we'll say, well, the first part, those who wrought the victories through faith, those are, that's what the Christian life is meant to be. That's what everybody gets. As long as I have faith and I walk in faith, that's what life is. The last part of that, those are the people whose faith was weak. Those are the people who didn't quite live up to par. Those are the people who, who maybe just didn't do what God wanted them to do. But that would be a misreading of the text. Right? Because in verse 33, it says that these people through faith subdued kingdoms. But look at verse 39. And all of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith. See, this isn't a story of the, the super faithful and the not so faithful. This isn't a story of those who had faith and those who didn't have faith. This isn't a story that you can be this or you can be that. This is a story of people who had faith. They believed God. They trusted God. They followed God to the best of their abilities. And for some, they wrought great victories. They obtained great deliverance. And for others, they were afflicted. And they were tormented. And they were tortured. You see, one group is not more faithful than the other. They are both equally faithful. They both had faith. They both followed God. They both did exactly what God wanted them to do. They ran the race that God had set before them. But for some, the race included great victories, while for others, the race included great pain. Now, part of what we know is that even like Gideon and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel who are the ones that obtained these great victories, we know that their life wasn't just one victory after another. There was also great suffering that accompanied their lives. None of the heroes of the faith, they got through life without difficulties. None of them ran the race with endurance that was set before them without there being pain along the way. But what they all had to do was they all had to push through the pain 
to complete the course to get this good testimony from God. You and I, as we run our race, I don't think we're going to be one group or the other. I don't think there's ever anyone that is one group or the other. I think we're a mixture of both. There are going to be times of great victories and there are going to be times of great pain. But if we want to complete the race that is finished before us, we have to push through the pain. We can't give up because it gets hard. We can't quit when it gets difficult because if we do, we don't finish the race that God has set before us. So the main truth I want you to understand today is this. I cannot finish my race if I will not push through the pain. I cannot finish my race if I will not push through the pain. You and I, we're on a race. And it's one that God has set before us. And sometimes on this race there will be great victories and other times there will be great pain. And if we can only run the race when there are great victories... And not when there's great pain. We will not, not finish the race that God has set before us. You and I, we cannot finish the race if we will not push through the pain. It's just the way that it is. So how do we push through the pain? How do we deal with the pain so that we can be faithful and obtain a testimony? There's three ways this passage tells us. First, is never compare my race to another. Never compare my race to another. Now, in these two groups of people, they they did seem to run very different races. And it's. It would be easy for us to look and say, well, one or the other or something like that. But I think something that we have to understand. One of the most detrimental things we can do in our spiritual life. It is to look at the race other people are running and compare our race to theirs. I think this is true in any area of life, really, comparing our life to another. How often is is comparison the thief of joy? If you compare yourself with someone who seems to have more, aren't you miserable that they have more than you do? Comparison either makes us live a miserable life or a mediocre life. Comparison makes us live a miserable life because we look at others that have maybe something we wish they had that we don't. And we think, gosh, why don't I have that? And so our lives are miserable and nothing we ever have is good enough. At the same time, though, comparison can make us live a mediocre life because we can always look at people that maybe aren't as far along as we are, that aren't as successful as we are, that haven't done as much as we do. And we can say, well, at least I'm better than them. Right. And so it keeps us from striving for excellence and running the race and doing all that God wants us to do. But I'm better than that, so I'm okay. You and I, we can't look at the race that others are running and say, well, what about them or what about that? Instead, each of us, we must run the race that God has set before us without concern, so to speak, about the race that someone else is running. We cannot look at other people's victories and say, I want their victories instead of my pain. We can't do that. What we have to do is we have to run the race that is set before us. Keep our eyes focused on Jesus and run our race. Now, here's the thing. Part of what we learn in this passage is not everybody gets the same race, do they? Right. We we in our culture, we think things should be fair. 
And we think that, that if there's pain in my life, then there ought to be pain in everybody else's life. And if I struggle, everyone should struggle. But that's not the way that it is. In reality, God does not give us each the same thing. We are not running the same race. Your race is unique and individual to you. And my race is unique and individual to me. Your race brings with it its own unique sets of pains and problems and hardships that I may not face on my race. But my race has its own unique sets of problems and pains and hardships that you may not face. So we can't look at others and say, what about them? Instead, we just have to run the race that God has set before us. These people each ran their race faithfully. And some stopped the mouths of the lion and some fed the mouths of the lion. Some stopped the edge of the sword and some were died by the edge of the sword. Some escaped jail before torture. Others were tortured even to death. It's not that one was more faithful, that God loved one more than another. They each had their own individual race to run. Let me show you this again from Scripture. Turn to John 21. Page 829, if you're in the Pew Bibles. Now, John 21 is, the, is after Jesus has risen from the dead. He has risen from the dead. He has met the disciples as they were out fishing. He has called to them to cast the nets on the right side to catch the fish. Peter has recognized that it is indeed Jesus. He jumps in the water and he swims to Jesus. And if you remember, Peter has the most shame in all of this, because Peter not only ran when Jesus was arrested, but he denied that he knew him three times after affirming that he's no way he would do that. And what I want us to look at, starting in verse 15, is when Jesus begins to restore Peter right back to being an apostle. He says, so when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So Peter is being restored. He's asking, do you love me? Are you willing to serve me? Are you willing to go and do what I want you to do? Peter, yes, I'll go. Yes, I love you. Yes, Lord. So look at what Jesus says to him next. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and you walked where you wished. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying the kind of death that he would. What's that? glorify God, death that would glorify God. And when he had spoken this to him, he said, follow me. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, follow me. Okay, I will. All right, here's the deal. When you follow me, there's going to come a time where it's going to go bad for you. Really bad. Not just bad for a while, bad to the point of death, but that death will bring glory to your father. Follow me. It's a hard statement, right? Going to go bad to death, but follow me anyway. Now, Peter responds, and and this is why I love Peter. 
Peter says what everyone else thinks, but often is afraid to say. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, which was John, following and also leaned on his breath during supper and said, Lord, who is the one who will betray you? Then Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about him? Right, and I think I get what Peter's doing here. Okay, God. Okay, Jesus, I'll follow you. And, and I'm okay if my following you ends in death, but, but what about Michael? What's going to happen to him? I mean, if I'm going to get this death thing coming in my future, he gets the same thing, right? I mean, we're going the same route and we're running the same race and we have the same end. Now, Peter's saying it should be fair. It should be fair. If I'm going to die badly, he should die badly too. But notice what Jesus says to him. If I will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. In essence, what he's saying is this. If I want John's life to be charmed and him to live forever until I return, that is none of your concern. Your only job, your only priority, Peter, follow me and the race that I have set before you. Now, in our day, it's common for books to be written to tell us that we all get the John package in life, right? There is no suffering. There is no hardship. If you just have faith and if you believe, every day's Friday, right? Your best life now. Everything is great and plucky and wonderful. And if you get the, the Peter package, it's because, it's because you didn't have faith. It's because you weren't faithful. It's because you were in some ways a subpar follower of Jesus. But here's the reality. Some people get the John package and some get the Peter package in life. Some live a long, good life and die peacefully in their sleep. And others get sick with a disease and do everything they can to overcome it and still die painfully and badly. That's just the reality. I mean, Scripture bears this out. Life bears this out. Our job, we, we can't look at the race another runs and say, well, what about them? Because if we were to say that to Jesus, do you know what he would say? You follow me. Right? He's not going to alter the packages. Whatever the race he has given us to run, whatever the race he has given you to run, that is your race. Your job, go ahead and turn back to Hebrews, is not to say, what about them? Your job is not to say, why, why aren't they having this problem? Instead, our job is just to run with endurance the race that Jesus has set before us. If we spend our lives looking at what's going on with others, we will be miserable. The author of Hebrews is preparing us for the fact that we have our unique race. He says in verse 12 or chapter 12, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Right. Just lay aside anything that holds you back. You focus on Jesus and you run your race. You cannot run your race faithfully looking at what others, what's going on in their life. What, why do they have an easier life than I do? 
Why do they have a bigger house than I do? Why, why do they have more stuff than I do? Why did that person get healed and I didn't? We can't do that. We're going to quit the race if we do that. Instead, what we do is we, we just follow Jesus. We just run our race. If we will not just run our race and push through the pain, we will never, ever finish the race that He has set before us. We will fall by the wayside at some point along the way. Secondly, first, you want to never compare your race to another. But, but secondly, don't expect heaven on earth. Don't expect heaven on earth. Part of the problem is what we expect. We expect sometimes that if we, if we have faith, if we live a holy and a pure life, then we will have this, this life that, where there is no con, conflict, there is no hardship, there are no problems. And, and many times we can even point to Bible verses that, that say, hey, there's this time of rest and there should be victory and there's healing. And, and we say that's the way it's always going to be all of the time. But that's really not what the Bible teaches. Right? We see in verse 39 that all of these they all obtained a good testimony. Even those that were stoned and sawn in two and were tempted and slain, they, they all did exactly what God wanted them to do in the way that He wanted it to do, them to do it and, and when He wanted it done. And yet their lives were still hard and they still died badly. But they still obtained a good testimony. But look at what He goes on to say. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, they did not receive the promise. Now, in the Old Testament, there were two big promises that they looked forward to. The first, in the first part of the Old Testament, was the promise of the promised land. That God would one day lead them into a land that would become their own. A land flowing with milk and honey. The second promise was that of the Messiah that would come. And while some on this list, they did see the promised land... None of them saw the promise of the Messiah fulfilled. They lived and they died without ever seeing that promise come to pass. Now, the reason they didn't see that promise come to pass, it had nothing to do with God not keeping His Word or being willing to fulfill His Word. It had to do with the timing. God doesn't do things in the time that maybe we think that He ought to. God does things in the time that He knows is right. In the time that He knows is true. right? And this is alluded to in verse 40. Having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Right? We always have to remember that God will keep His word. Not a jot nor a tittle will fall from all that God has said. But that doesn't mean it's going to happen right here, right now in the time that we think that it should let me show you this from Scripture. Turn back to Hebrews 4, verse 8. Now, in the verses leading up to this, the author of Hebrews has basically reminded the, the people about the Israelites going into the promised land and the, the rebellion of those that didn't make it. If you remember the story... Moses led one group out and they got to the edge of the promised land. But then they said, oh, 
The people are too big. We can't possibly make it. Why has God brought us here to kill us? And so God said, all righty then. None of you are going to go in. Have at it. You're just going to wander around and you're going to die. But the next generation, they're going to go in. And so Joshua came up and he led the nation and he led them across into the promised land. And he led them into the land that was that was the fulfillment of this promise, this land where there would be rest, this land where there would be flowing with milk and honey. But look at what it says in verse eight for Joshua, if Joshua had given them rest, he would not afterward have spoken of another day. Wait a second now. Joshua didn't give them rest. Hold on. We think about the book. Joshua led them into the promised land. Did they just walk in and have rest? What happened? No, they entered the promised land and then they just spent the next several years fighting. There were lots and lots of battles that they had to fight in the years that they first entered the promised land. They fought, they fought, they fought. And then, after they had conquered most of the enemy, they they did have a measure of rest, but there wasn't really the fullness of the rest that God had promised, that God had said would come. There was still always a bit of turmoil. There were still people in the land. There were still outside agencies who, who came in and caused problems. Therefore, he says, or there, there remains, therefore, a, a rest for the people of God. There, there remains a rest for the people of God. See, the, the rest that, that God promised in the Old Testament, it wasn't ever going to be fulfilled in the land of Israel. It was never going to be fulfilled in that time frame. There would be a measure of it, but not the fullness of it. There is still... A day of rest coming for the people of God. We live in this earth right now and we look forward to a time of rest. How will we know when we have entered in that time of rest? For he who has entered this rest has himself also ceased from his works. As God did from his. No more striving. Now, working here, this doesn't mean you retire and sit and watch TV so you've entered into God's rest. This is referring to no striving at all. There's no striving against our sinful nature. There's no spiritual battles to fight. There's no wars and rumors of wars. There's no sicknesses and pain and death and parting. Now, as we look at our world, that's not this world, is it? In this world, we will have tribulation. In this world, there are problems and hardships and conflicts and death and sickness and disease and drought and famine and floods and and evil. But there is a day coming in which all of that will be gone, in which all of that will be no more, and there will be rest, and we will be in the presence of our Savior. Knowing that that day is coming, what do we do? Let us therefore be diligent. To enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. In this life, there will be a measure of rest and there will be a measure of work. There will be ease and there will be difficulty. There will be both. But there is a day coming which will be free of all of the wrong and all of the sin and all of the evil and all of the bad of this world. And if we keep that in perspective, there's coming a day where no hardships and no trials and all of that, then we'll be diligent to move and to go and to seek that rest that's coming. 
But if we look for that rest now, we will live disappointed. We will live discouraged. There is no way to live in this life and avoid the hardships, the conflicts, and the trials that are just in part of a sin-cursed world that's fallen apart. And if I expect heaven on earth, it will defeat me. It will beat me down. And I will not be able to finish the race that is set before me. But if I live with the idea and I know this world is not all that there is. There is coming a day of rest. Then I can push through the now to get to then. I can keep going. I think, I think God gives us at times a measure of rest. He gives us this a measure of grace and peace and just, ah, life is perfect. But He does it to make us long for another world. He does it to give us a taste that there is a day coming that is far better than anything you've ever imagined. What you've had now is only a taste of what's coming. This world is, is not our home. We are strangers and pilgrims, the Bible says. And the good times of this world, they make us long for the better times in the world to come. The bad times in this world, they make us long for the day of rest that's coming. Both good and bad remind us there is something better coming along the way. And it pushes us to be diligent, to keep going and to seek out that day that is coming. And if, if I expect heaven on earth, I am going to live my life disappointed and disillusioned and defeated. But if I understand there is a day of rest coming, I can push through and finish the race that is set before me. Go ahead and turn back to Hebrews 11. So we, we never compare our race to another. We don't expect heaven on earth. And then finally, we, we want to ensure that Jesus is enough. We have to ensure that Jesus is enough. Now, the author says there's a reason that they didn't receive the promise that God provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. There was something coming later. They, they didn't receive that one big promise they were looking for because there was a time coming when God would fulfill it, but it would include everyone and it would be far bigger and far better than anything they had experienced in that time. Now, the question is, what does this all mean and refer to? Well, there's something better that made us all perfect, of course, is Jesus. And a part of the idea is that we, we push through the pain because of Jesus. Jesus is enough, right? As it says that they were tortured and they wouldn't escape it because they wanted to obtain a better resurrection. Or as he says in Hebrews chapter 10, that they suffered the loss of all things because they knew that God would provide something better in the time to come. You and I, we, we have to have a, an absolute certainty 
that what's coming is better than what we're experiencing, that what's coming is worth the pain. You know, when I, I mentioned being a soldier going to basic training, it never stopped hurting. But graduating and being a soldier, that was going to make it all worth it all. And it did. What's going to make the pain of this life worth it all? What's going to be worth it at the end when we get there? Because if we're not convinced that what's waiting for us then is, is worth it and is better than what we're going through now, we won't keep going. We all have to search our hearts and make sure that, that if we get to the end and we get Jesus, that's everything we have ever wanted in life. That is all that ever matters. Now we see this in Scripture from the Apostle Paul. You know, Paul's life was one of pain and suffering. Paul, in a lot of ways, and I've always mentioned this, but Paul's life was actually, as far as a, a physical, earthly standpoint, Paul's life was better before he came to Jesus. He was rich. He was respected. He was successful at his job. He was on the fast track to leadership within the nation. And then when he turned to Jesus, he, he kind of lost everything. And he talks about it in Philippians that we won't look at, but take some time and read Philippians and see all the stuff that he lost. But, but he lost everything. He lost his respect in the community. He lost his place in his family. He lost his job. He went from being someone that lived a life that was basically easy to suffering. And when he talked about his suffering, he, on multiple occasions, he, he suffered 39 lashes. He was beaten with rods. He was shipwrecked. He, he went without food and clothing. One place he even talks about walking around naked. How bad is life if you're having to walk around naked? But he kept going. He never gave up. Why? Why did he never give up? Because Paul knew that Jesus was enough. I want to show you something. Turn to Second Timothy. 2 Timothy 4, maybe. Yeah, 2 Timothy 4. Verse 16. This is such a great passage. Paul was at the end of his life. He's writing his last letter to his protege, Timothy. And in verse 16, he said, At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. That's pretty bad, right? May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. That the message might be preached fully through me. That all the Gentiles might hear. And now notice this. Also I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Now out of the mouth of the lion I think probably literally means out of the mouth of a lion. Given the way Romans treated Christians at this time. And look at this last part. Verse 18. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me. For his heavenly kingdom, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Right now, in verse 17, the delivery out of the mouths of the lion, that's literally, he was put in a place where lions would eat him, and for some reason they didn't. He was delivered out of the mouths of the lion. Verse 18, he says the Lord will deliver him. He's in prison. He's waiting to find out if they're going to kill him or not. And he writes that his expectation is that God will still deliver him once again. Now, what happened to Paul? Was he delivered out of the jail cell? Not in the way we think. Paul went from prison 
to the block and his head was cut off. He never actually got out of prison physically in this earth. So was Paul wrong when he thought that the Lord would deliver him from every evil work and preserve him for the the kingdom that is to come? No. He was delivered. Just not in the way that we often think of with deliverance. In Scripture, we find that God sometimes delivers people from the sword, right? They're going to be killed and they, they get out of it. And then sometimes God delivers people through the sword. They die. Think about Peter and John in the, in the book of Acts. John is taken and he's killed. Peter is taken. Same plan to kill him again because it pleased the people that he killed John. And God sends an angel and leads him out. One was delivered from the sword. One was delivered through the sword. Was Paul disappointed in the fact that he wasn't delivered from the sword, but through the sword. Was Paul disappointed that he didn't get to get out of jail and go on and do other things, but instead was taken from prison and beheaded? I'm going to tell you, I think he was not. And here's why. In his first imprisonment, Paul said to live as Christ, to die as gain. Now That's a great verse, but think about what he's saying. If I live, I'm going to live for Jesus. But to die is gain. That's better. In Paul's worldview, dying and going to be with Jesus was better. In fact, he says that exact thing in a few verses later. He says, I'm caught between two. If they were to come to me and say, Paul, do you want to live? Or do you want us to kill you? He says, I don't know what I would say. Because to depart and to go be with Jesus, that is the best thing ever But you guys kind of need me here, so I don't know what I would choose in the moment. See, Paul, Paul was delivered. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. And when they cut off his head, he was fully delivered from that thorn in the flesh. Paul was often beaten and had many enemies. But when they cut off his head, he was delivered from what they would ever do to him again. Paul's life, I'm sure after all he'd endured, I'm sure his body Ached all of the time. And when they cut off his head, he was delivered from that pain forever. They would never be able to hurt him again. They could not hurt his reputation. Nothing they could do would ever matter. And he went to be with Jesus. As Paul stood in the presence of Jesus, he did not say, Oh, man! He rejoiced. That he was finally with the one that he had longed for since he had been converted. So here's the question. Is that going to be enough for you? Is that going to be enough for me? What if? What if the race that God has set before you is a job that you don't really like and it's harder than you ever imagined and it just goes on and on and on? So that's the race that God has set before you. And he won't take it away like he didn't with Paul's thorn. Is Jesus going to be enough at the end? When you stand before him, will that make it all worthwhile? 
What if the race that he has before you leads to conflict that goes on longer than you ever thought it would? One problem after another. You can't fix it. You can't undo it. You're for peace, but they're for war. And it's constant. If you pray and you pray and they won't ever reconcile, it won't ever stop. But that's the race that he has for you. Getting to the end of the race and being with Jesus. Will that be enough for you? What if it involves a sickness that lingers? Life teaches us that every routine doctor's visit could have long-lasting bad consequences. What if our next visit determines that we have cancer? And we pray. And we believe. We do all that the Bible says. We do all that the world can do. And yet we're not healed. And we still die. When life ends here, will Jesus be enough if that's what we've suffered now? What if the race set before us involves suffering pain that comes from the death of a loved one that you prayed for God to heal? Not just you. What if it's someone else? What if someone you love gets sick and you pray and you do all that you can and, and nothing works, nothing fixes it, nothing makes it better? Will Jesus be enough at the end? What if you try as hard as you can to keep your marriage going and it collapses anyway through no fault of yours? You've done all that you could. But your race is still to be faithful to Jesus, to run and go where he wants you to go. Will Jesus be enough? What if the race set before you is that of financial ruin? You've planned and you've done all the things you're supposed to do. You've been wise, but still things go badly. If you lose all of the wealth of this world, but you still have Jesus, will, will that be enough? In the end, that's the question we all have to wrestle with. That, that's the big question, really. Is Jesus enough? Because I'm going I'm to go out on a limb and say that these people in Hebrews 11 that suffered and were tortured and were miserable, I bet they prayed to be delivered. I bet they prayed to be healed. I bet they prayed to be saved. I bet they prayed... That they wouldn't be imprisoned, that they would be freed, that they wouldn't be stoned, that they wouldn't be cut in two. I bet they prayed for food when they were destitute. I bet they, they prayed, they begged, they believed, they tried. But the reality is God's race for them were these awful things. And that's just the reality of life. Some of us, we will have to run very, very hard races. They will be difficult. They will involve suffering. They will involve trials and hardships. If we stay faithful and we get to Jesus, will that be enough? Even if the race never gets easier. Even if the pain never stops. Will Jesus be enough? There's a song that we sing sometimes. And it says it'll... Be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will be so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of here's dear face. All sorrows will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. We sing it. Do we believe it? If Jesus is not enough, we won't finish the race. If Jesus is not enough, 
the pain will cause us to quit. I think the, the, the primary thing that will motivate us to push through the pain and run the race that is set before us is knowing that at the end of it all, we, we get to be with Jesus. That's a thing we have to settle in our minds and in our hearts. Is He enough? Let's stand.